From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Susan Rice has been called a lot of names. She was nicknamed Spo as a child for her spoten athletic abilities. President Obama labeled her, labeled her one of three furies on his national security team. One TV commentator called her the right's favorite chew toy following her now infamous round of TV talk shows days just after the attack on the U.S. diplomatic compound in Benghazi, Libya. Well, just this weekend, President Trump tweeted that Rice was a disaster for her role in the Obama administration's Syria policy, And as we learn in her new biography, Tough Love, she's been called worse. Ambassador Susan Rice defines herself in the new book as proud descendant of slaves and immigrants, as imperfect daughter, wife and mother, as dedicated public servant under President Clinton and U.S. ambassador and national security advisor to President Barack Obama. She's coming to Atlanta for a conversation with Stacey Abrams, hosted by Acapella Books. That's at George Tech's first Center for the Arts on Wednesday at 7. But joining us now from NPR in Washington. Ambassador Susan Rice, welcome. Thanks, Virginia. Great to be with you. So you mixed it up with President Trump a little over the weekend. He tweeted (laughs) after you'd been uh, talking about Syria on Real Time with Bill Maher. Were you surprised he was tweeting responses in real time? Well, I'm surprised he was watching Real Time with Bill Maher. Uh, And I guess he didn't like my criticism of the decision he made to withdraw U.S. forces from Syria. So he called me a disaster And I tweeted back asking if I'm such a disaster, then why at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2015, two years after the so-called disaster, did he come up to me when I'd never met him before, lift me out of my chair, hug me, and whisper in my ear that I'd been very unfairly treated over Benghazi and was doing a great job for the country? That was my one and only encounter with... uh, President Trump, obviously, before he was president, it was surprising in the moment. But I thought I maybe should remind him of that, given that uh, he had chosen to call me a disaster. Did he respond? Uh, not yet, to my knowledge, no. I actually did look up the, the Hill reported on that hug back in 2015 at the White yeah. House Correspondent yeah. Dinner, calling it There's a huge there. and dramatic hug in the middle of the Washington Hilton Ballroom. It was a bit... Uh, disconcerting, I must say. Well, okay. So President Trump, however, in his tweet says, remember the red line in the sand. That was Obama. Millions killed. You, of course, remember the red line. In fact, you acknowledge... And by the way, Virginia millions weren't killed. Well, I I know that. And I don't remember (laughs) in the sand ever being mentioned also. But there we go. But you do remember the red line and acknowledge in the book that Assad must go and saying that, saying that Syrian President Assad must resign were mistakes by the Obama administration. Very candid about foreign policy decisions that proved wrong. But you defend your course in Syria despite the very high cost. Why? Well, Virginia, I spend a a good bit of time in the book uh, on this topic and others trying to be um, objective and and faithful in my self-criticism and assessment of where we succeeded and failed. I take some time on Syria because there are really three different parts to the Syria issue. There's the chemical weapons use in 2013, the so-called red line uh, that um, resulted in President Obama deciding to strike in Syria, but before striking, seeking congressional authorization, which wasn't forthcoming. Uh, And then instead, negotiating with the Russians and others to remove 1,300 metric tons of chemical weapons from Syria and destroy them. That was the first issue. The second issue was, which, by the way, we can come back to, but 
I I actually thought he should strike, and I was alone in making that recommendation among the senior uh, U.S. officials. But as I also say in the book, I think I got the politics right, predicting that Congress wouldn't give him the authority, but perhaps the policy wrong in that we did get 1,300 metric tons of chemical weapons out, destroyed, which would not have otherwise happened. The second issue related to whether the United States ought to get directly involved in the Syrian civil war on behalf of the side of the opposition to try to topple Assad. And this was an issue we wrestled with repeatedly over the course of the Obama administration. President Obama ultimately made the decision not to intervene militarily with U.S. forces, although he did provide support to the opposition. He did get involved very actively trying to resolve the crisis diplomatically and, of course, provide humanitarian assistance. The third aspect of our involvement in Syria related to the fight against ISIS. And there, President Obama decided that this was indeed our fight, that ISIS was a very dangerous terrorist organization that threatened the United States and our allies. And he deployed U.S. forces to both Iraq and Syria to deal with that threat. These are the forces in Syria that President Trump abruptly decided to withdraw with all the attendant negative consequences for the fight against ISIS, for the Kurds who we've abandoned. Uh, and to the benefit, of course, of Russia, Iran, Assad, and Turkey. Oh, of course, those same accusations were made of Barack Obama for not intervening sooner in Syria. The idea that his hesitation to send in troops to assist the anti-Assad rebels opened up the path for ISIS to fill in the void. How do you answer that when now you and others are saying that, well, what's happening with the present Trump administration has opened up that very same void? I think these are different cases, and that's why I tried to be clear about the three different challenges or the three different fights that we chose to get involved in or not get involved in in Syria. Uh, I don't think that it's accurate at all to suggest, and I don't know that many have suggested, that the failure to get involved in the fight against Assad left open the door to ISIS. Uh, ISIS came from uh, Iraq, was reconstituted following what happened uh, in Iraq, And as it arose in both Syria and Iraq, President Obama swiftly took the decision to fight ISIS. What he didn't decide to do was to fight Assad using U.S. ground forces in a big ground war in the way that uh, President Bush had previously decided to use U.S. forces to remove Saddam Hussein. So um, I do think that, you know, to be precise, we have to look at these three different aspects of the challenge in Syria, none of which uh, were easy to deal with, all of which... Uh, had uh, particular challenges associated with them. But everybody in the U.S., for the most part, was in agreement, Democrats, Republicans, uh, civilians, military, that we had to fight ISIS. And that fight against ISIS was proceeding well. Um, you know, By the time President Obama left office, ISIS was well on its way to defeat in both Iraq and Syria. President Trump, for the first two years, continued that fight uh, using the same battle plan that President Obama had put in place, which was essentially to use very limited numbers of U.S. forces to train, advise, and assist and equip Kurds and Arabs to take the fight to ISIS. And what President Trump has recently decided, to harsh criticism from both Democrats and Republicans, was to unilaterally withdraw that small number of U.S. forces who were, in effect, 
there to help the uh, Kurds continue to keep pressure on ISIS. Um, but we're also protecting the Kurds indirectly from a Turkish invasion, which we've now seen happen. We've now seen the Kurds have to retreat from their traditional homeland in the north of Syria in what is amounting to, uh, in effect, an ethnic cleansing of northern Syria. I'm speaking with Ambassador Susan Rice, former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., National Security Advisor to President Barack Obama. She's in Atlanta to talk about her book, Tough Love, this week. Well, this is something that you point out over and over again in the book, that there are no perfect ways to do this in the in the world of foreign policy. And mistakes are made. Um, and you, I think, look pretty candidly at some of those mistakes. And I think we look at the high costs of decisions, very high costs, candid about foreign policy decisions that proved wrong. So tell us a little bit about that, that in many cases, this is about the decision to do to create humanitarian aid or military in intervention. So what do you do when there are no good choices? And how would you advise President Trump and his administration now? He said on his campaign promise that we would pull out of the endless war in the Middle East. Well, one of the main points I try to make in the policy portion of the book, as opposed to the many personal uh, aspects of it. And I promise it, we will get to those. <laughs> Thanks, Virginia. Is that... Um, in, when you're making decisions at the highest levels of the U.S. government on foreign policy and national security, by definition, by the time they have, these tough issues have risen to the highest level, they're rarely good options and bad options. They're really often bad options and worse options. And the challenge for policymakers utilizing a structured and rigorous national security decision-making process is to try to sort through what are the least bad options and how do we pursue U.S. interests in light of the challenges at hand? And I do try to spend time, whether we're talking about Syria or, uh, you know, or Libya or Russia or China, um, assessing you know, where I think we got it right and where I think we got it wrong. What is interesting and important, though, uh, Virginia, is that, you know, every administration, Democratic or Republic, Republican, um, has faced tough issues, and none of them get them all right, by definition. Everybody makes mistakes. Um, the more responsible leaders acknowledge those mistakes and try to learn from them. And uh, But what has been the foundation of U.S. leadership and effective um, decision-making processes has been the leadership provided by the National Security Council. This is the body chaired by the National Security Advisor and at the highest levels chaired by the president that brings together the cabinet-level officials from state defense, the intelligence community, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, etc., to wrestle with these hard issues and use analysis and use intelligence and consider options. And what is so concerning about where we are today under President Trump is that process has broken down. These senior cabinet officials don't meet on a regular basis. There isn't the bottom-up consideration of options and assessments and recommendations to the president that are well thought through. And then the president himself, as we've seen most recently in the case of Syria, is making decisions on the fly without the input from his advisors that bear little resemblance to our national security interests. And so if I were advising President Bo uh, uh, Trump today as to where to go, 
the first thing I'd advise him to do is to reestablish an effective national security decision-making process and empower his national security advisor and members of the cabinet to sort through these very difficult issues and provide him with recommendations. And then I'd suggest that he seriously consider the advice uh, of his senior advisors because that comes from a wealth of experience and knowledge that shouldn't be discarded. All right, we have just a minute until a break, but I'm wondering about the experience for you of watching another administration making policy in real time. Well, you know, Virginia, anytime you have been in and then you're out and you're watching your successors, particularly of a different party, make decisions, you may have differences with the substance. That's how it was my experience after the Clinton administration watching the Bush administration. But this is something altogether different. This seems to be a foreign policy uh, driven not by the national interests, but driven by the interests of an individual the president of the United States, whether it's his personal political interests or his financial interests. And that's what's so uh, starkly different from the past and so concerning, I think, to many national security professionals in both parties. We're going to take a break and come back with Susan Rice. She's former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and national security advisor to President Barack Obama, author of a new memoir. It's called Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. And we're going to hear a lot about her life growing up, including some of her family friends. That is why we're listening to a disco song. Van McCoy <laughs> is one of them. The Hustle, like Vernon Jordan, Madeleine Albright. He was a friend of the Rice family. She's going to be in conversation with Stacey Abrams on Wednesday, event hosted by Acapella Books at Georgia Tech's First Center for the Arts at 7 o'clock. Tickets are still available, and you can tweet us at OSD Talk and ask a question or tell us something that you're thinking about this conversation for a chance to win a pair of tickets to see that event. Just be sure to write the word Pick Me to officially enter your name in the drawing. You can find out details at gpbnews.org. Again, quick break. We're going to stick around. Do a little bit of the hustle and get back with our conversation with Ambassador Susan Rice. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, continuing a conversation with Ambassador Susan Rice. A year ago, Ambassador Rice was considering making a run for the Senate against Susan Collins, longtime Republican senator from Maine. But in her new autobiography, Tough Love, Rice writes that she doesn't have the patience or obsequiousness to run for office and adds throughout that she prefers the comfort of policy-focused behind-the-scenes roles. Well, we're going to talk about what led her there and to some of the discomforts of of such highly influential roles, serving on National Security Council during the Clinton administration, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., and later National Security Advisor to Barack Obama. She's also now the author of a new bio autobiography. It's called Tough Love. Ambassador Rice will be in conversation with Stacey Abrams on Wednesday at Georgia's first Center for the Arts, and tickets are still available, and we're giving them away. Tweet at OST Talk and tell us what you're hearing that stands out for you, what you want to know from Ambassador Rice for a chance to win a pair of tickets. Just be sure to write the words, pick me to officially enter. You can find more details at gppnews.org. Ambassador Rice, so these tough decisions that you made, you talked a little bit about them just before the break, but they come from this kind of tough-minded pragmatism that embodies the tough love that you write about in the book and what led you to a career in public service. You grew up with those values. When were you aware of those expectations for yourself? 
Well, Virginia, I grew up uh, in Washington, D.C., the daughter of two parents who themselves were um, came from humble circumstances and became quite accomplished professional, professionals. My mother um, was born and raised in Portland, Maine. She was the daughter of immigrants from Jamaica who came to Maine in 1912. Uh, they were a janitor and a maid and had little but sent all five of their kids to college. And my mother, the youngest, uh, became a leader in the corporate world, but also uh, a person who dedicated the bulk of her professional life to trying to expand access to higher education to college for low-income Americans. And she was eulogized at her death in 2017 as the mother of the Pell Grant program. Mm. Um, which has helped 80 million Americans uh, reach college. My father was born in segregated South Carolina in uh, around 1920. Um, He served during World War II with the Tuskegee Airmen and went on to get his Ph.D. in economics and eventually to become a governor of the Federal Reserve System. By the time my brother and I came along in the mid-1960s in Washington, they were very much already involved in the business of Washington. My father at the Treasury Department and at the World Bank, my mother uh, working on education policy from outside the government. And so I was steeped in the the business of policymaking. Um, and I went to school um, at, a, um, at a private school in Washington, D.C., with the sons and daughters of members of Congress and people in the administration and ambassadors. And so I had this early uh, opportunity to see how government works and what the potential was. And from the time really that I was 10 years old, as I write in the book, I thought I wanted to be a United States senator. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I was from Washington, D.C., which then and indeed still now has no voting representation in Congress. It was in my early 20s uh, when... As you quoted earlier, I decided that I didn't have the patience uh, and the temperament to run for office. That wasn't actually what uh, persuaded me not to challenge Susan Collins in the present. I've grown up a little bit since my early 20s, and I think my temperament is not the, the question uh, and my willingness to uh, to be patient and compromise. Rather, it was a, a series of personal considerations, particularly my daughter, uh, our youngest child, being a junior in high school now. Uh, and after having committed eight years uh, of her life to the Obama administration and very intense jobs, I didn't think, think this was the right time to uproot our family uh, and move to Maine. So that was principal consideration. Um, but I, from an early age, I've cared about policy. I've cared about the business of government. And for me, the real issue came in my 20s when I had to make a decision whether or not to f- pursue foreign policy and national security which I'd studied in graduate school, or domestic policy and become a lawyer and an advocate for civil rights and human rights, which was really another passion of mine. And I ended up sort of almost uh, almost randomly choosing foreign policy and national security, and one thing led to another. Well, so there is so much about your family in here, just really distinguished people. Um, your grandmother was Maine Mother of the Year in 1950, you said. All four of her kids went to 
four sons went to Bowdoin, your mother went to Radcliffe. But your father also, interesting experience, grew up in the South and was in the service. He was drafted in World War II, served in the armed forces, but also saw firsthand the pervasive discrimination. You know, he wasn't, he was transferred to Lexington, Kentucky, I believe, where he could not eat into the restaurants, but the German prisoners of war could eat in the restaurants. These are all things that your parents shielded from you. The fact that you're your your mother, you know, was went to Radcliffe, but there was a question about whether she could go because she may not find another African-American woman to room with her. As it turns out, she found a really illustrious one. But this idea of your parents sort of shielding you from those elements of race, and then you, it, this private school, Beauvoir, uh, the National Cathedral School uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., were you shielded from this idea that your race would do anything to hold you back. Well, let me be clear. It's not that they shielded me from knowing of their history and experience. Quite the contrary. They shared that with me. And I knew growing up about my father and his experience and my mother's family in Maine. But what my father in particular tried to shield me and my brother from was the psychological burden that he so felt growing up being a black man in Jim Crow uh, South. And by that, he meant, you know, he was taught all his life until he was well into adulthood that he was inferior, that he was not meant to uh, amount to anything. And that burden, that psychological burden, was something he had to work extremely hard to overcome. And he did, ultimately. But really, through the force of psychology and, and, and his inner strength, he came to realize as a grown man after World War II, while he was a graduate school, uh, while he was in graduate school in California at the University of California at Berkeley, that actually uh, he was as capable as any white man uh, and more so uh, given his innate talent and that he was not going to allow the discrimination that still pervaded American society so profoundly in the 50s and the 60s as he was coming up to limit his hopes for what he could accomplish. So they taught me very much the history and my, uh, and that infused my upbringing. But what they also did was to shield me from the notion that there were any limitations to what me and my, my brother and I could aspire to. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was an extraordinary gift that my father gave me. He didn't share with me until I was an adult, the bitterness he felt, for example, about serving in a segregated military during World War II and being asked to serve and fight on behalf of freedom for everybody but our own people. Um, he didn't tell me about the German POW story until I was you know, much older. So he tried to give us the understanding and the self-confidence, as did my mother, that we could be who we set out to be. Um, and that was extremely empowering, even as we were well aware of the fact that we live in a society in which race and uh, gender and all these other uh, considerations are uh, often set up as obstacles against people like me. They told us to believe in ourselves and to try to supersede those obstacles, as difficult as they may be. And they also taught us, quite frankly, that even though they had come from very modest backgrounds and worked their way up, by the time they were able to send me and my brother to school and to quite uh, quite p- privileged private schools, that we were 
um, we were very, very fortunate relative to our peers. And that with that good fortune came a responsibility and an obligation uh, to serve, to be about more than ourselves. Uh, and we could serve in any way. It didn't mean government or the military necessarily. It just meant being about more than personal ambition, but to be committed to the larger whole, the larger community, the larger country, indeed the world. Susan Rice is my guest. We're talking about her new book, Tough Love. She's going to be talking about it with Stacey Abrams in Atlanta on Wednesday evening. Well, he also told you that... Uh, it is other people's problem the way they see you, not yours. Exactly. This is, but this is characteristic of something I think that comes across in your personality. You know, you're even when you were in college, you were sort of unbowed by um, by other people's expectations. Got into a little, you know, conflict with your mom. I think certainly <laughs> you wanted to go to for one. You know, she had she had her own image of what a woman was and how they behaved. You also studied. Uh, anti-apartheid, anti-colonization in Stanford and Oxford. You were active in these in the anti-apartheid apartheid movement. Wrote a thesis on Zimbabwe. Very strong. There's a conversation or a story in the book about kind of getting in. Paul Simon's face at a local <laughs> event about having made the Graceland album in South Africa. I'm just wondering, like, where did you get this from? This sort of like, you need to hear my point of view. And, and how did that serve you later, maybe is the question. Um, <laughs> well, I, uh, I grew up in a family where there was robust debate around the dinner table, um, where, you know, my father would get into it with my uncles about politics and race. Yeah, you know, where, you know, even as kids, my brother and I would have robust discussions with our parents about Watergate or Vietnam or what have you. And so we were raised to not be afraid of uh, verbal combat in service of a, a rational discussion about an issue. Um, and we were also raised to, to believe in ourselves and to have the courage of our convictions. Uh, and so from an early age, that's how I've been. It's, it's, you know, some people are uncomfortable with women, particularly African-American women, who are confident and do have the courage of their convictions. And, you know, there have been people along the way who've uh, not really known how to deal with that or felt uh, intimidated by that. But I've tried not to worry so much about how other people are perceiving me, but to do what I think is right, to try to do my best, to be, act from a position of integrity and principle. Um, and, you know, to try to be a leader who's supportive and compassionate about uh, the people I work with um, and my family and, and, and friends, but not to let other people's per perceptions, biases, even prejudices infuse my own self-perception. My dad once said, and I write about it in the book, and this sort of is a metaphor for his entire mentality, if my being black is going to be a problem, it's not going to be a problem for me. It's mm -hmm. going to be a problem for somebody else. In other words, if, if I'm dealing with somebody else's bigotry or prejudice, recognize that that bigotry comes from an inherent insecurity in the bigot rather than some flaw in myself. Uh, and don't let that other person's insecurity or prejudice become your own self-doubt. 
You went on to become uh, the work with the State Department under, the, I'm sorry, and the National Security Council under President Clinton. This was after you were had been a Rhodes Scholar, uh, studied at Oxford, and were working for McKinsey. You were 28 when you started working in this this pretty heady job and thrown into a decade of. Africa, essentially, um, working as a black woman. You were at first hesitant to be pigeonholed as representing Africa. But in the end, you know, this was we had Black Hawk Down in Somalia. We had Sudan, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Ebola, bombing of U.S. embassies that came later. But this is a time when the world is turning on its head in many ways in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union. And you going into these conflicts as a young woman, learning from other people like you talked about your father's modeling behavior for you on some level, but also people like Richard Clark. What did you learn from these leaders who were insistent on their way of doing things, but also had, you know, he was beloved. He was a rational person who taught you a lot. Well, I was very fortunate, Virginia, starting in government at age 28 uh, and joining the National Security Council staff. I was far and away one of the youngest uh, policy uh, staffers there. And, uh, you know, I had the benefit of being mentored early in my career by people like Richard Clark, who many will know as uh, the well-known counterterrorism czar and now cybersecurity uh, expert as well. Um, I also was mentored by former National Security Advisors Anthony Lake and Sandy Berger, and especially by uh, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who uh, has been a wonderful influence on my life from childhood all the way to the present. And so I got very lucky to have very experienced uh, people take an early interest in me and help me learn and grow. And from Richard Clark, who was my immediate first boss in government, you know, who was very effective as a what I call in the book a bureaucratic samurai, somebody <laughs> who knew how to make the the system worked, but he also rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Uh, not the people for whom he worked so much and not the people who worked for him, but anybody who was sort of uh, his peer uh, and got in his way uh, sometimes found themselves uh, on the wrong end of, the, of a short stick. And so from Clark, you know, I learned a lot about how to get things done in in government, how to write effective memos to the president, how to run an interagency meeting, how to find money in the budget. But as I say in the book, um, I also learned that, you know, you don't always need to um, uh, to, to run roughshod over uh, other parts of the bureaucracy to get stuff done. Sometimes there's a, a more uh, you can use honey rather than vinegar. Ambassador Susan Rice is going to take a quick break. Stick around. She's the former National Security Advisor for President Obama, former U.N. Ambassador, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. She's out with a new book, but we're taking a quick break and listening to Funkin' for Jamaica by Tom Brown. A favorite <laughs> My dad's of his favorite song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ode to your dad. She's going to be speaking with Stacey Abrams on Wednesday evening. And remember, you can win a pair of tickets. Just tweet us at OST Talk and... Pick me is what you should put in the subject.
We are back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, continuing a conversation with Ambassador Susan Rice, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., National Security Advisor for President Barack Obama, and author of a new uh, autobiography. It's called Tough Love, and she's joining us from NPR in Washington, D.C., but will be in Atlanta this week in conversation with Stacey Abrams at Georgia Tech's First Center. So there's so much I want to get to, and I we're going to have to condense a lot of it because... We have limited amount of time, but I want to just look at that that experience that you had with the Clinton administration serving in the National Security Council and later as senior director of African affairs. The U.N., of course, and U.S., the lack of response to the swift and horrific mass slaughter of hundreds of thousands of Tutsis. This was in Rwanda in 1994. Horrible bind here because this is one of the first times that you are seeing very clearly what it is like to work with the U.N. Security Council to try and get action on something, something that you later, as U.S. ambassador, confronted all of the time. But this was personally very traumatic for you. I think uh, President Clinton has called it the failure of his, the greatest failure of his presidency. Personal lessons and regrets that have stuck with you. First, how did it affect your approach to foreign policy? Well, Virginia, I was a junior staffer on the National Security Council uh, responsible for the United Nations. This was before I was responsible for so, Africa. Right, so not a decision and, maker, certainly. Not a decision maker, no, but but an, a, an observer, a low-level participant in the process. And what I saw personally, having subsequently traveled to Rwanda six months after the genocide when uh, there were still bodies thick on the ground. It was just a h- horrific uh, experience that I've never um, forgotten. And it certainly inspired me to be, uh, on a gut level, more um, inclined towards active uh, engagement or, in certain circumstances, intervention in the context of humanitarian crises. A view that is a that I sh- still have as an instinct, but has evolved as I become more uh, experienced and more senior, and had responsibility uh, for making recommendations on action or no action. And what I came to understand is, and is that you need to have a fully engaged, real time decision making process on these questions. The failure that was stands out to me most starkly in the Clinton administration about Rwanda was because it came right after Somalia and Black Hawk Down. There was really never any serious consideration in the administration, in Congress, even on editorial pages, as to whether or not the United States or others in the international community ought to intervene to try to prevent or or stop the genocide. And so it was the lack of consideration, wasn't it, that we looked at it and said, no, we're not going to do that. We never even called the question. And so years later, when I am in a senior position and am in a, uh, in a position to decide you know, whether we have a meeting on X, Y, or Z, that lesson has stuck with me. Uh, and even as we wrestled with tough subsequent decisions in the Obama administration about, for example, Libya and Syria, and we can debate whether we got those uh, decisions right or wrong, we certainly called the question and we certainly wrestled repeatedly with the the costs and the benefits of whether or not to intervene and uh, what the 
U.S. interests and values were that were implicated in those questions? Well, uh, this is something that comes across, I think, very starkly. It's also uh, the last conflict that was fought and argued in, on the domestic sphere makes a big difference. That you, after Somalia, you're not going to get participation of Congress necessarily, or it's going to be hard to get that to go forward into Rwanda, for example. Or yes. after what goes down in Libya, you know, you may not be able to get assistance for Syria in the same kind of way. This is one of the political realities. But I want to talk about Libya because this is a definitive part of your career. The you were pro aiding the rebellion to against the dictator Colonel Gaddafi, Muammar Gaddafi, whose army was bearing down on Benghazi. And after your experiences in Rwanda, seeing no action with Darfur in in 1996, the, you were vocal for intervention in Libya. So. Um, curious about how this took place, what was happening behind the scenes to convince the president to intervene. Right. And so just to be clear, my argument was not in favor of supporting the rebels to topple Gaddafi. It was for the United States with NATO and with Arab partners to intervene to protect civilians who were in imminent risk Right. Of I'm sorry. Slaughter. I should have made that clear. This was not about regime change. And that was right. a, a clear, right. clear state of goal. So, I, um, as UN ambassador, was part of President Obama's National Security Cabinet, uh, the Principals Committee that I later chaired as National Security Advisor. And I argued in that context that because I thought we could accomplish the protection of civilians at relatively low risk and cost to the United States military and our interests, we could do it from the air. It didn't need to be a ground war. We could do it in a finite amount of time. We had allied support uh, and we had international uh, backing through the United Nations. I argued that that was the right course to take. And I think it was. We managed to defend tens of thousands of civilians who would have been slaughtered. Uh, and we did so at no cost to American lives. The problem with Libya came in the aftermath. After the protection of civilians mission uh, after Gaddafi was uh, removed. And when Libya, which had no modern experience with the institutions of government, because Gaddafi really was a one-man show, um, failed to come together and cohere as a uni unitary society. And the United States, the UN, the international community, in my judgment, as I look back critically on this, didn't invest enough effort up front to try to help the country reconstitute itself and cohere. And so now, in subsequent years, you know, it's really been uh, a, a very f fragile, if not failed state um, with fighting among various factions and no single uh, coherent government. And I fault the United States uh, and others in the international community for not being there as uh, as swiftly and, and in as sustained a way as we might have. I also say, though, Virginia, that even if we had been, it's not clear to me that that would have been enough to ensure that Libya could have hung together. I think, you know, the the problem is we just won't know because we didn't, we weren't able to be there as uh, and in as full and, and sustained a way as I wish we had. Well, and no. then partly because of Benghazi, which after 2012, when we tragically lost four Americans, including our ambassador, 
in a horrific terrorist attack uh, on our consular and diplomatic facilities, Washington sort of recoiled and, and, and lost its remaining interest in Libya for a period of time. And by the time we came back to it in 2013 uh, and, and subsequently, it was, it was kind of too little too late. Well, and of course, that is not the only thing that happened after Benghazi for you. And I would love to talk to, to you about that on a personal level. Um, not necessarily, I think anybody can read the book and, and talk about your responses to how you were attacked after Benghazi, but more the, on the personal scale that your, your mom told you before when you told her you were going to make the rounds uh, just a couple of days after the attack on the compound on, on this Sunday, after, Sunday morning talk shows. And she said, I smell a rat. You know, uh, you shouldn't do this. Why are you the face of this? Why isn't Hillary Clinton out there doing it? And you forthrightly went forward as as somebody in the administration and you became the face and you became attacked for it. Not just you, but your family felt the effects of that. I'm sure. Well, actually, I should ask you that, you know, if you were <laughs> to go go back and do it all again, would you have done it differently? Well, one big lesson from my book is always listen to your mother, uh, <laughs> which I try to remind my children of now. Um, my mom had an intuition um, born of years of experience that uh, that when you are the public face in a very, you know, crisis hot moment, particularly in the, the heat of a political season and this of course was you know when campaign season. president right when president obama was running for re-election against uh, mitt romney that uh you know you are likely to become whoever's that face is likely to become a target just as much as their message is and um you know i wasn't thinking about myself when i was asked by the white house if i would be willing to go out on the shows it was certainly as i write in the book it wasn't what i was planning to do that weekend i was trying to take my kids to ohio state for a big 10 football game and uh but i said yes because i've you know i'm a team player and i felt as capable of doing it as as uh, others and i didn't want to say no because it was inconvenient for me i think my mom perceived that you know this could go wrong and she was right and one of the lessons i've learned is that even though you know i've always been raised to be about the mission to be about a larger enterprise to not be focused on myself sometimes you do have to think about what the ramifications are for you personally in 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 making decisions that seem like uh the right thing to do uh, for the overall team, but that may actually come back to haunt you. My mom uh, had just come off of her fourth or fifth cancer surgery and a stroke. Uh, and after all, the public vilification of me, and she was a voracious consumer of cable news, um, it really affected her uh, emotionally quite negatively. And worse, it affected my nine-year-old daughter, mm -hmm. um, who at the time was absorbing in the background all of what you know was happening to me and we had as parents not understood swiftly enough that having the television on for children uh could could really be debilitating and so she started to have um what can only be called hallucinations mm -hmm. and we were deeply worried took her for a battery of tests to to examine you know is this a brain tumor is this some kind of psychosis or schizophrenia is it a 
visual impairment. Um, and thankfully, after a few weeks, they were able to you know, rule out all the worst case scenarios and conclude that it was probably a stress reaction to what she was seeing happen to me. And so, you know, this persisted for months, um, diminished after about a year. She's a happy, healthy, you know, very thriving young uh, woman now. But um, I include all that in the book, quite honestly, Virginia, because I want people to understand whether you come from one party or the other, that when we have this, you know, very <laughs> vigorous politics of personal destruction in Washington, which seems all too common, uh, at in in the moment, the people who suffer are not just the victim or the target of the attacks. It's the people who love them, mm. uh, and the people who work with them, and the people who uh, are invested in them. And so, you know, nine-year-old kids don't sign up for this stuff, uh, but when they're parents or loved ones do, it can it can be quite painful. Right, and there's a tremendous cost. In fact, you write in the book that. Uh, that our domestic political divisions are, in fact, our greatest national security vulnerability. And those kind of divisions, the kind of firing line that you felt there, you were the focus of, absolutely. And it cost you, really, the Secretary of State position. You withdrew your name from the Secretary of State. I did withdraw my name from consideration, but, Virginia, I hasten to add that, you know, I, I'm not certain that President Clint, that President Obama would necessarily have selected me. I was one of uh, at least two candidates, so I want I, I don't want to presume that that would have been his decision. But, but certainly when you were, you know, Lindsey Graham was calling you uh, names and John McCain <laughs> was calling you names, it was going to be tough. It was going to be a tough run. But I, I just want to get to that because... We have to close in just a minute, but in your own family, you know, your son is um, very, he's a, he's a conservative, conservative, he's a very conservative young man. Um, your daughter is not, you know, so you She's see the, very progressive. <laughs> you yeah. see your effect in the, in the family, there's the division. But it, I thought there was just an interesting thing that you and your son would often argue about politics. And you said to him, if we can't, you know, he, he would say, Mom, we just shouldn't talk about this. And you said, if we can't do this, who can? And I think that there maybe is a lesson here for the rest of the country about how to talk about differences and wondered yeah. if there's anything that you can share with us as we close. Well, uh, my son and I, our family, we're all quite close, uh, but we do have these differences. And just as I was raised to have the courage of my conviction and stand up for my views and to think independently, my husband and I tried to raise our kids that way, and unfortunately, that's what happened. <laughs> we have kids who have very Think different Think for themselves. Views. Exactly. Um, but yes, what we're challenged with in our family is in many ways a microcosm of our national challenge. And in the last chapter of Tough Love, I write um, about the challenge of bridging our domestic divides and why it's so important both to our national security and to our cohesion and sustainability as a democracy. We've got to be willing and able to listen to one another and to tolerate views with which we differ. We've got to get out of our cocoons where we tend to consume information and live with people who think like us. Uh, I actually um, argue for a range of steps uh, in that last chapter from the personal to how we educate our kids to political reforms. But I also say on the on the far end of ambition, that we really ought to consider mandatory national service for 
all Americans in the age range of, say, 18 to 22, so that for six or 12 months, they are working with, living with, cooperating with people who come from vastly different backgrounds, all socioeconomic backgrounds, rural, urban, you know, all different races and religions, so that we actually have to know each other. It's very hard to hate people, Virginia, when you know them. Mm. Well, Ambassador Susan Rice, I want to thank you for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Ambassador Susan Ray, she's former National Security Advisor for President Obama, author of the new autobiography, Tough Love, My Story of Things Worth Fighting For. Well, like your dad played jazz for you, Ambassador Susan Rice, we're going to leave you and our listeners with Peace by Ornette Coleman. This Wednesday at 7, Ambassador Rice will be in conversation with Stacey Abrams. It's going to be at Georgia Tech's first Center for the Arts. Tickets are still available, but if you want a chance to win a pair of tickets, you can tweet us at OST Talk. Tell us your thoughts, maybe something that surprised you about this interview with Ambassador Rice. Just be sure to write the words, pick me, to a put your name into the drawing. You can find details on that at gpbnews.org. And join us for tomorrow's show. We're going to talk more about violence and the conflict in Syria and hear from a Syrian-born Georgian and an evangelical leader about why Georgians should be paying attention to the story. That's it for our show for today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer, interns Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar, Amy Kylie is senior producer, Mary Lynn Ryan, executive producer, and Virginia Prescott, thanking you for spending some time with On Second Thought.